My phone number is 760-586-6532, in case you missed that. And I'm not joking. 760-586-6532. I would love to hear from you if you have a question about anything that goes on here in our church. It is my joy and delight to get questions from you. It is not so much my joy and delight to get emails, because those have a habit of finding their way into this abyss where they are never yet found again. Texts, kind of the same thing. I have a particular genetic defect that allows me to look at that little indicator on my phone that shows the number of texts, and as they multiply rapidly, sometimes getting into the hundreds, I feel nothing. (laughs) However, if you wish to call, I would love to have a conversation with you. And the reason is that I get to hear your voice. I, I get to hear the tone in your voice, and you get to hear the tone in my voice. So you know what it is that I'm saying to you, not just in my words, but, but from my heart. And it also allows me to go back and forth to really get down to the, the bottom of what it is that you're asking and how I can better serve you. And I was reminded of that even in the lobby earlier today when one of our faithful church members asked me a question yet again about the issue of prophecy in the New Testament. And we're going to talk a lot about prophecy today. But if you've been through our membership class, you'll know that we tend to take our study of the spiritual gifts from Romans chapter 12, just because it's a little less confrontational than in 1 Corinthians, a little less corrective. Uh, And one of the first gifts that are mentioned there is the gift of prophecy. And it says a prophet is to prophesy according to their faith. And what that means is that the one who prophesies, the one who preaches forth the gospel, is to do that uh, to the extent that they have been trained up in the faith, trained up in the Scriptures, trained up in theology. Not just what the Scripture says, but then what we understand that to mean. Now, we don't believe that you get revelations from God today. There aren't prophets uh, like there were in the early time of the church and even in the Old Covenant where they got direct revelation from God. That's not what we teach. But we do believe that there is a prophetic preaching ministry. And for me, that happens a lot more, I think, when we're talking about books that are really highlighting the specifics of the gospel. And I felt myself doing a lot more preaching, prophesying, if you will, exhorting when we were in, say, the book of Galatians. But I find myself, when I'm here in the Gospel of Matthew, especially at this first introduction part, which is chapters 1 and 2, much more putting on that role of teacher. And and I want to teach, and so I I, I confess to you from the beginning that the sermons may be a little less on the preaching side and a little more on the teaching side, and that's okay. We bounce back from time to time between the two. And maybe one of the indications that this is going to be a little bit more of a teaching time than a preaching time is, is as I was walking up here, I found myself carting up like a multiple book. So if you know when I come up like this, it's going to be that kind of sermon. But you know, that's okay, because we need that sometimes. Because one of the blessings of ministering to this flock is that it is a diverse group of people. Uh, you come from many different walks of life, but you also come from many different religious Christian backgrounds. You come from different denominations. You come from different groups that were influenced by certain teachers. And one of the things that I thoroughly enjoy is just trying to help everybody sort through that, because we have such a diverse group. I know that almost every time I approach a text, that there are going to be people that are saying to themselves, whoa, you're going too fast, and there will be people saying, hey, you're going too slow. 
there will be some that are saying, here's your opportunity to really unpack this really important doctrine. And others of you saying, wait a second, I've never heard this before and you're really upsetting me. Some people are, are very easily uh, upset by the fact that they might hear something taught in a way they hadn't heard it taught before. I know that for many of you, you, you come from a background similar to mine, which was influenced by the Plymouth Brethren and by the Keswick Movement. And where I grew up in, in eastern Canada, that was very popular. Others of you grew up with a, a more Dutch Reform background or some other Reform background, and, and yet here it is, all of us together in this one church, because one of the things that draws us together is an understanding of the gospel, which is that by faith alone your sins are imputed to Christ, and by grace alone his act of obedience is imputed to you. And so what we get to do on a day like today is go back into the text of Matthew and be instructed from Matthew, a teacher who was trained up by Jesus himself on how to interpret the Old Testament in light of the coming of the king and his kingdom. Now, we gave you an extensive, exhaustive, and, and maybe exhausting history last week. And again, I felt that was necessary, and I gave you all of that so that I didn't have to say a lot of that this morning by way of either introduction or context. So if you would please open up your bulletin today, you'll see some very simple summary statements regarding the context. I'll let you just review those on your own if you would like. And we are going to return today to Matthew chapter 2, and we are going to look at it by answering questions related to the big idea, which is this, namely that the birth of Jesus Christ divides the world into two kingdoms. The birth of Jesus Christ divides the world into two kingdoms. If we were to just go back to the very beginning, we're going to work through the text verse by verse. And the first thing that we're going to see is that there are really two kinds of power. There is a temporary control that exists on the earth, and there is a more eternal dominion that is over the earth. And those two are going to come into play as we study this first section of Matthew 2. So join me there again, if you would. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Herod Remember an Idumean, a man from Edom, a man granted the title of king by the emperor, the one who was responsible for overseeing the Jews that were in that area of Jerusalem and Judea. Matthew, the author of this text, inserts something that is meant to get your attention. Instead of using exclamation marks, he uses the word, behold. And whenever you see the word behold, I would encourage you just to stop and ask yourself, why? What am I supposed to notice here? And what you're supposed to notice here is that magi from the east have come to Jerusalem. The magi were the magicians. They were the sorcerers. They were the pagan uh, mystics. They were the ones who are never spoken of well in any other place in the New Covenant, whether it's in Acts chapter 8 or 13. Now, these are the ones that were responsible for identifying, based on their own arts, magical arts, who it is that was going to be the next king. They were king makers. They were not themselves kings. I know it's so tempting around this time of year to sing a song like We Three Kings of Orientar. And I never knew where Orientar was. But there weren't 
three, and there weren't, they weren't kings and none of that other stuff. They get so muddled up this time of year. In fact, it was quite a long time after the regular birth narrative where Jesus is born to Mary that they arrive, and they arrive from the east, and you're supposed to notice that, behold, here it is, the pagans, the Gentiles are coming to Jerusalem. And why are they coming to Jerusalem? Why is Jerusalem the epicenter of everything? Because they have come to worship. Notice what it says. Where is he who is born king of the Jews? Note the word born, please. He was born king of the Jews, not made king of the Jews. They are going to go to seal and to certify what God had done because he had allowed his Christ to be born. And you'll recall, from the seed of a woman and from the superintending power of the Holy Spirit. And he was born king of the Jews. No one had to give him that title. Now, this would have sent alarm bells off in Herod's mind. Who is this one who has come to be born here, who is going to usurp my authority and take my throne? And they go on to say, for we saw his star when it rose. Uh, some of your translations say rose in the east. Well, that's not exactly the right way of looking at this. It just rose, the same word. It's like the sun rises in the east. It was the rising. What they saw was the rising. And we're going to say more about this word star later. I don't want you to get too hung up on this being an actual celestial body. But there was an indication, this star, this glory that rose, and we saw it where we were way out in the east, Babylon. Men who had likely come under the tutelage of Daniel hundreds of years later, the one who was placed over these magicians by Nebuchadnezzar. And they said, now we know and what we have heard, and this one is born, this king of the Jews, his sign appeared, and we're now here to see it. We've been drawn out from the Gentile world and into the epicenter of the Jewish kingdom. Where is he? We have come to worship him. You see, it was prophesied from old that the Gentiles would come to worship in Jerusalem. And so, verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And brothers and sisters, if you were an average person living in Jerusalem, you would be troubled too because of the nature of this man, because of his absolutely diabolical character. When he was troubled, everyone was troubled. Because he was such a murderous person, putting to death his own family members, putting to death his in-laws, putting to death anybody who got in his way. Whenever there was some rumor in town about something that might threaten his power, he was the first to go out and make sure that it was annihilated. He didn't want to be on the wrong side of Herod's anger. And so what he did was he assembled the chief priests and the scribes, those who were of the party that was in political power, these chief priests, the religious leaders, if you will, usually politically aligned, and then also the scribes, many of whom were actually quite conservative and cared deeply about what the Scripture says. And you'll recall from last week we said that he was strategically getting together both kind of the liberals and the conservatives, and if they could agree on where this boy was, then he would know where to send his men to kill him. You see, he understood the first point, that the one kind of power is a temporary control of the earth. You see, Herod had no real power. We know from the Scriptures that God raises up leaders and God tears them down. We may enjoy the thought of being involved somehow in the process of determining who is there, but at the end of the day, it is really negligible. In fact, it's non-existent. It is all in accord with what his providence has ordained. He raises them up, he tears them down, and Herod's days were ending. And there was nothing he could do about it. And what you had was this eclipse from the temporary power of man and into the eternal kingdom of God. And we're going to see that here in a moment 
So he is terrified, and he realizes that this child has been born who is to be what he calls here the Christ in verse 4. He knew what to ask for. Find me the Christ. Find me the Messiah. Find me the fulfillment of all those Old Testament prophecies that one would come who would rule the people of Israel and would give them back their kingdom and overthrow the bonds of Rome. And so they told him exactly where to find him. You see, they knew their Bibles. They said that according to the prophet, you will find him in Bethlehem. Verse 6 is a quote from Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. And then I believe that the last part was added here by Matthew, looking back at 2 Samuel 5, verse 2. The first part says, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. And the second part, For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, brothers and sisters, this is the point where we have to begin to ask ourselves, how was it that Matthew was able to use the Old Testament this way? Uh, Did he just have that verse memorized and thought to himself, well, this sounds kind of similar. I think I'll throw it in for dramatic effect. Uh, Did he get some special insight from the Holy Spirit that this is, in fact, a true statement, but unfortunately, he was misquoting the Old Testament writer because, after all, the Old Testament writer had particular authorial intent and there was a historical context, and all that really matters is what the original author said in the original context. Do you realize that was actually a liberal development in the Christian church? They're trying to strip away all of the prophetic word about the coming of Messiah and Jesus Christ and instead trying to lock you in to merely studying the old covenant as if it were a story written to another people. What we know is that neither of those are true. He was not carelessly using the Old Testament, nor was he misusing the Old Testament. Not only was he a man inspired by the Holy Spirit, but brothers and sisters, he was a man discipled by Jesus Christ. Do you remember when Jesus was on the road to Emmaus and the people who were with him, their their, their whole attention was absolutely absorbed in what he was saying because Jesus spent the entire time on the road revealing himself from the Scriptures. What Scriptures? He wasn't using the New Testament, friends. It hadn't been written yet. He was going through the Old Covenant verse by verse by verse revealing to them how all of it was pointing to him. All of it was fulfilled in him. That is how we are to read it. At this point, I want to just pause for a moment because I can tell that there might be, even within this audience, a little bit of confusion as to what I mean by that. And so let me acknowledge again that we're all coming from different places. We all have a different background. We're all bringing with us a certain amount of baggage. And and you have to be honest with yourself. And not everything that you were taught was necessarily true. And sometimes you are going to learn as you go along in your Christian life that there were some things you used to believe and now you don't believe them anymore. Or you have better knowledge of it or a fuller knowledge of it. And and so when I was confronted with this myself, I realized that I had inherited a lot of things. I had been taught a lot of things. And I had to sort of rethink some of that. And it came down to this issue for me with this body. Remember, I shepherd the flock of God among me. I'm not worried about what anybody else believes outside the walls of this church. This is important for me to shepherd this flock, and I know where this flock comes from. Some of you grew up underneath the system of interpretation that is sometimes called dispensationalism. Others of you grew up in a system of interpretation you might call covenant theology. And I know that many of you were trained up 
in either camp among certain militants to believe that the two couldn't possibly coexist in any way within the same church or within the same system. There's always going to be this conflict. There's always going to be this battle. And it's almost like the lines are drawn where absolutely everything one side says must be wrong. And you have all the truth on your side. And so I knew this would be a stretch for some of you that came like I did from that more dispensational background. You might be saying, wait a second, I haven't heard this before. And maybe some of you who came from a more covenantal background, you might be saying, well, there's a lot more you could be saying, you know. So to that group, I want to say, be patient. We're going to work through this verse by verse. And to those of you who came from the other side, I say also be patient. I'm not trying to upset anybody. To prove that, when I was just at my desk this week, I reached back and I took an old family heirloom that was given to me. This is, I don't want to say it's an original one. It's not actually an original one, but it's a very old one. Schofield Reference Bible. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of this before. A Schofield Reference Bible. Schofield was um, an early dispensationalist. He was somebody who, uh, in the early 1900s, uh, began to write and, and teach extensively. He was influenced by uh, some of the people who brought dispensationalism into existence, but he had not yet really been uh, infected by some of the things that happened, especially after World War II, when dispensationalism got particularly wonky. And so I was curious to know, what did he say about the Gospel of Matthew? And I opened it up, and I, I was pleasantly surprised to see that what he would have taught is exactly what we would have taught. And therefore, if this is your background, I, I don't think you should feel in any way that you're under attack. In fact, he says this, and I'm going to directly quote him. When he talks about Matthew, when he talks about the purpose of the book, and he talks about what the main theme of the book is, he says this, the words quoted, speaking of Hosea 11.1, 1, and the passage, illustrate the truth that prophetic utterances often have a latent and deeper meaning than the first, than at first appears. Israel, nationally, was a son. Talked about that in Exodus. Remember, God says that you let my son go, or I will kill your firstborn son. He says Israel, nationally, was a son, but Christ was the greater son. You see, Christ came to show that he is the greater, perfect Israel. He is the son. And so when we see the prophecies made and spoken about the nation of Israel, you will often see them transfer from being plural of a nation to singular of a person. And the point that Matthew is making in his gospel is that that person is Christ. And what I just read, to the best of my knowledge, wouldn't offend anybody who holds to a covenantal system of understanding this. You see, in this we're aligned, and in this we'll move forward, in this good word. Now, if you're curious, as I was, about some of the history of where you came from theologically. I read this very interesting book recently called The Rise and Fall of Dispensationalism. And I kind of wish it had not been titled that because it sounds like a hit piece on dispensationalism. It's not. It's a history. And it's, it's well written. And if you're like me, and that was sort of your background growing up, uh, you will find this very interesting, especially the third part called pop, popular dispensationalism. 
everywhere from the late great Planet Earth Hal Lindsey stuff to that ridiculous Left Behind series, shows you where this movement really went off a cliff. And now you can read and say, oh, I understand now why people said what they said and why I thought what I thought. It is not an attack on dispensationalism. It's actually quite a good history of it. It's kind of like going to Ancestry.com and learning about your physical lineage. You know, you can learn here about maybe in some of your cases your, your spiritual lineage, at least of how you were taught. Well, with that as a rather long and embarrassingly awkward confirmation, let us continue. He writes this, speaking again, remember, of Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. This is what the author Matthew is doing. He is reaching back into Micah. And what he is saying is that I am picking up in Micah 5.2 with the full understanding that everything has a context and all of Micah comes with me. When I was in high school, one of my favorite classes was taught by a teacher whose favorite line, whose favorite quote was from John Muir, and it was this. He said, pick up anything in the universe and you will find it attached to everything else. And in some ways, you can look at that as what Matthew is doing. He says, pick up any of these Old Covenant prophecies and you will find them attached to everything else. Scripture has one author. The Holy Spirit has superintended all of it. And when Matthew reaches back and he uses terminology like he did in Matthew 1 where he says literally that this is the genesis of Christ. Borrowing that, that Septuagint language from Genesis, he is doing it intentionally. If you have your Bibles, please flip over just a few pages to the book of Micah. And I want to give you some context. Let's read this to understand what he is saying. Micah chapter 5. This is a prophetic judgment against the nation of Israel. Israel and Judah were separated. Micah himself prophesying in Judah from about 750 to 700 BC. He's denouncing those in Judah and looking forward to and referencing even the taking away of the northern tribes. But as Matthew reaches back, he says this, understanding the context, chapter 5 of Micah, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege this land against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. He's judged. He falls. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is able to be ruler in Israel whose origin is from old, from ancient of days. No one's from ancient of days except God. That's the language Isaiah uses. Micah understands that. Therefore, he continues on, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd the flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of Yahweh his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. You see, he's looking forward to the eternal dominion over the earth of King Jesus. This is what Matthew means when he reaches back into Micah. And so continue on, if you will, back into Matthew chapter 2. 
The text continues, when Herod then summons these magi secretly, he wants to find out what time the star appeared. The word star is used quite often, even in the Old Testament. One of the things that I find interesting is that it is used to describe Christ in the book of Numbers, this one who would rise, this star. And I don't think we have to look at this as being particularly a celestial body, a literal star that we would see up in the sky for various reasons. One is that Though historians have tried to show some sort of astrological coming together of planets or something to prove this, there's really nothing that we can look at. This is a divine miracle. This is something God did. God put His sign in the sky for His Messiah, and it caused them to leave where they were and go to Jerusalem because they knew that was the place to find Him. It doesn't say they followed the star to Jerusalem. It says the star appeared where they were. They went to Jerusalem. The star appears again this time over the place where Christ was. And so they are sent to Bethlehem. And Herod says, go and diligently search for the child. He doesn't call the child the king. He says he's the child. Notice that. And so after listening to the king, they went on their way. They did what they were to do. And behold, that star that they had seen way back when they were at home, it came to rest again this time over the place where the child was. And when they saw that star, notice how he's piling up the adjectives. He says, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Why would a bunch of pagan astrologers rejoice with great joy? Because they were among the first fruits of the Gentiles that were coming in to worship King Jesus, whose rule and reign would spread forever. And going into the house, notice it wasn't the stable, they were in a house now. They saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening up their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. This again was not a random assortment of gifts. It was something too that was prophesied, the gold that was given to kings because it was worthy of their position. The frankincense which was used in the offerings to God, a symbol of the prayers that went up to him as a sweet aroma and the myrrh that would one day be used to anoint his body as he was put into the grave. Because people in those days still believed that that body would see corruption, and yet he would prove to fulfill Psalm 110. It was never needed because he would rise from the dead. But they give him these gifts, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they depart to their own country. Now notice continuing on. Verse 13, now when they had departed, behold, the angel of the Lord then appears to Joseph in a dream. He says, take his mother and flee out of Egypt, or flee to Egypt, remain there, because Herod is going to seek out and destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night, and they departed to Egypt, and they remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I have called my son. Once again, we need to turn and take a look at how this is being used, so I'm going to ask you again to go back into the Minor Prophets. Hosea chapter 11. Forgive me if these texts are not familiar to you. I would encourage you perhaps in the coming weeks to read them again, become familiar with them, because they're going to play prominently throughout the rest of the study of the Gospel of Matthew. Once again, I need to give you some context, because he isn't just pulling out one singular verse. Hosea, as you know, himself as a man, was to marry a prostitute in order to show the faithfulness of God and the unfaithfulness of Israel. 
But that's only the first three chapters. The rest of it are these prophetic words of judgment and encouragement. And we get to chapter 11. It says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Once again, you see, Israel was God's son. He says here very clearly, when you think of Israel, you need to think of his son. Let my son go, he says to Herod, or I will kill your firstborn son. But the more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by the arms. But they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love. Cords of kindness and bands of love. God says, I lovingly trained you up. I lovingly corrected you. I gave you a good law. A good law that was good for you, but you rebelled against me, you rejected it, and you chose to worship false gods. You were an adulteress. And so he says in verse 5, and your translation should say, they shall surely return to the land of Egypt. There should at least be a footnote telling you the correct translation. They shall return to the land of Egypt, by Assyria shall be their king because they refuse to return to me, the sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, devour them because of their own counsels. You see, they are the ones who are going to suffer at the hands of pagan nations. Why? Because God, in his providential plan, is going to have them punished. But he's not going to forget them. They're going to be punished because, in verse 7, my people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. But notice, please, verse 8, this is such a comforting reality. We've sung earlier, and we will again, about the love of God. The love of God is demonstrated here in Hosea chapter 11 in a most particular way. He says, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? Just so you know, Ephraim was a son of Joseph. Joseph was a son of Rachel, one of the wives of Jacob. And when you think about the northern tribes, Israel, they're often called Ephraim or Ephraim. And he says, how can I forsake you? How can I make you like these pagan nations I'm going to destroy? The second part of verse 8, I love this. My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. In the punishment of his son, his compassion grows tender. Parents, can you relate you punish your children because you love your children. You would be a negligent parent if you didn't punish your children. If you let your children do whatever they wanted, you would be a negligent parent. Catherine and I are going to be leaving later on today. We're going to be gone for a few days. We're leaving our son at home. We are parenting him from afar. Catherine has laid out everything for him, his day, his schedule. He doesn't get to do what he wants. He doesn't get to eat what he wants. He doesn't get to do whatever, you know, even though he's almost a grown man now. Sorry, son, to bring you into this. Hope I'm not embarrassing you. You're our last chance. The other three are gone. But we're parenting him. Sometimes parents not only have to parent, but they've got to punish. And you know what it's like to punish a child who needs to be punished. And at the same time, your heart recoils inside of you. I don't want to do this. I don't take joy in doing this. That is a little glimpse of the character of God towards his people, Israel. And he says, though I punish you, I recoil. And what comes back is compassion, 
warm and tender. I will not, verse 9, execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man. I don't, I'm not like a man. <laughs> I'm God, and I do only what is right, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. I will not violate my promises. Oh, you will be punished, but you will be immediately enveloped as well in love. And so when Matthew uses this text, it is with all of that in mind. You see, there are two kinds of power. There is a temporary control on the earth as seen in Herod and his crumbling kingdom, and there is an eternal dominion over the earth as seen in King Jesus and his righteous rule to come and do perfectly everything that the son Israel failed to do. Now, beloved, there's also two kinds of people, and I will be brief as we wrap this up. But beginning in verse 16, we see a bit of a shift here. Two kinds of people, those who trust in man and those who trust in God. In verse 16, now, when Herod, or then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by these magi, in whom he had placed his trust to bring him word of the child so that he could be killed, he became furious and he sent and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. This was fulfilled. This was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they were no more. Please go back to Jeremiah chapter 31. He's identified here as the source of this prophecy. And I wish we had time to go back into Genesis to see the story of Rachel, that in her dying, in her lamenting as she dies, giving birth to a son, weeping over the children she's leaving behind, she becomes the portrait of the mother of unified Israel. From her comes Ephraim, who is often used to describe the northern tribes, and from her came Benjamin, used to describe the southern tribes. You see, when they were united as one, they came from her, and when they are carried away into captivity, she is the one who weeps. But in this case, he reaches back to Jeremiah 31. And if you are familiar with Jeremiah 31, you know it's a wonderful chapter of encouragement and comfort and blessing. In fact, it wraps up with the new covenant and the promise that one would come who in his blood would be able to give hearts of flesh to the people who have a heart of stone and write his law in their hearts forever. But just by way of context, chapter 31 and verse 15, we read this. Thus says Yahweh, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Thus says Yahweh, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, there is a wage for your work, declares Yahweh, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy." All of this is known by Matthew. He's picking up on this prophecy saying, look what's happening. A king is born in Jerusalem. That those who are scattered abroad are going to come home. They're going to come home under his rule and his reign. They're going to be taught by him, led by him, healed by him, fed by him. He's going to live out perfectly before them. What Israel, the Son of God, is supposed to be. And then he is going to die with King of the Jews written over the top of the cross. 
in order that He might extend to them the righteousness and impute it to them that they could never earn. That's why when we get back into the Gospel of Matthew in a couple of weeks, chapter 3 is 30 years later than the end of chapter 2. If you were a biographer, your editor would say, you know, you might want to jot down something about the guy's life in those 30 years. But it wasn't relevant to what Matthew was doing. Matthew's a historian and a theologian, and he's teaching you something about Jesus. And what you're going to see is that even in the calling out of the people, an exodus of sorts, to repent, which means to turn from that religious system that was dragging them down to hell and be baptized anew in John's baptism, which would eventually lead to Jesus' baptism in the Spirit. You see, Jesus was going to come to do all this, and then at the end, he is going to say to them, all authority before he sends them out has been given to me. All authority has been granted to me. Now, therefore, go. No longer everyone is coming into Jerusalem, but now from Jerusalem, everybody, go. And then you get into the book of Acts. And if you've been listening to our series through the book of Acts, you'll know what all of that entails. But it identifies two kinds of people. Is your trust in God or is your trust in man? Verse 19, as we draw this to a close, but when Herod died... Don't put your trust in man. Every man is going to die. Put your trust in God. Behold, there's our word again. You must notice it. Behold, something happened. An angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. Behold, notice it. He says, get up and go. Out from Egypt. This is another exodus It is Exodus language. Rise, go. It's the same language used in Exodus of the people of God. Verse 21, and he rose and he took the child and his mother. Notice that. It's the child and his mother. It never says his son. You see, Matthew is careful to to keep that thread through the entire narrative. This is not Joseph's son. This is Mary's son. And Mary is his wife. And they were responsible for this child. And they go to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus who was even more wicked than his father, was reigning over Judah in the place of his father Herod. He was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. You know, Galilee is just a nowhere place. And not only in Galilee were they in a nowhere kind of county, they were in a nowhere city in that county named Nazareth. Nothing good came out of Nazareth. But once again, the kingdom of God is not like the kingdom of this world. It's not going to be centered in the headquarters of power and privilege but on the outskirts, calling men out to it. You see, he was going to come as the one in Mark, not to to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Well, he goes to Nazareth. That, what was spoken of by the prophets, might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. You know, as we talked about this last week, I gave you some examples of some interpretations for this. closest one I can think of that would be helpful is that it is using a word in the Hebrew that can also be translated branch, or it's from the same root. And if you've been in the Isaiah study here in the first hour, you'll know how important these words are. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 9 and 11 and others, you'll see this branch. This branch will come out of Jesse. A little spindly branch will come out from David's line A little sucker, you would say. It's not a big limb. It's this little spindly branch. And yet from that little branch will grow this mighty kingdom. He will be a Nazarene. He will come from obscurity to rule the world. 
And there is so much more that can be said. And those of you who maybe are waiting for me to cover some other text today, be patient. Those of you who are perhaps now thinking to yourself, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that I've ever understood it that way, I would say also be patient. Let us work together through this amazing gospel and allow that which is biblical, that which is true, that which comes from the Spirit of God, illuminating your spirit, teaching your mind, be that which we hold on to. We don't need to derive our understanding from men, from even study Bibles. We, we, we derive our understanding as the Spirit of God directs us through the Word of God because that is where we find our challenges and our comforts. Matthew is done introducing us to the king who has come, the king who has been crowned by the kingmakers, the king who is now living in this obscure city out in Nazareth, and the king who would one day be called upon to lay down his life on a cross in order that he might draw all those to himself who put their faith in him. If you have not done that today, if you are sitting here and this has just been one massive, overwhelming data dump, I apologize. <laughs> it's a lot. It's a lot for any of us to try to understand. However, what I can say is this. This is what you do need to understand. That a Savior was sent. A man who was able to live as man, to live perfectly, to obey everywhere man failed and then die as a man for man. But a man who is also truly God. And as a result of that, able to take upon himself the full punishment and pay the full price for all who would believe, for all whom the Father had given him. And so the only instruction given is to put your faith in him and not in anything that you are doing to earn favor. It is simply in faith, falling before his feet and worshiping, as those magi did. We don't know if those magi were converted. <laughs> we don't know. All we know is they came, identified him, and they went home. But you have a chance. He's been presented for who he is. What will you do? Will you fall down and worship and receive his righteousness? May today be the day of salvation. Father in heaven, we thank you for this text of Scripture, and even for this somewhat arduous march through it, I, I, I do pray that you would assist us in understanding these difficult concepts. But for those of us that are challenged with this, because it's different than how we have been originally instructed, I pray that you would illumine our minds and you would open us to the truth, your truth. Father, for our church, I ask that as we march through this massively significant gospel, that you would reveal yourself as king, and that you would show us how from start to finish, Matthew intentionally shows us how all of these prophecies that he uses are not only fulfilled as prediction, but are brought to completion and filled up in Christ. May he be the center of our focus, joy, comfort, and praise. For it's in his name we pray.